energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that navigates the path to net zero. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then this is the show for you. Join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. Welcome to the first Horizons episode of 2022. It's a new year, but it's business as usual on the podcast. Coming up, I'm joined by Monique Mahdi, environmental change maker and climate consultant, and Peter Martin, director of macroeconomics at Wood Mackenzie. And together, we're going to analyze the economic impact of accelerating the energy transition. If we are going to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, we need to speed things up. We have the means, the motive, and the opportunity to do so. Economically, it's going to mean short-term pain for long-term gain. Increasing the speed of our transition to renewables by 2050 is going to result in a hit to global GDP, with low-income economies and hydrocarbon producers suffering bigger losses than developed economies. An accelerated transition, though, is going to pay off in the next few decades in climate terms, but it might take longer to reap economic dividends. So with that, it's truly my pleasure to introduce two dynamic guests who are going to help us understand the economic trade-offs of accelerating the energy transition. First up, joining me today is Monique Mahdi, Senior Consultant in Climate and Green Growth and Board Member of the Future Energy Leader Program. Now, Monique has worked internationally as a technical expert over the past decade on projects and policies focused on climate technology, clean energy transition, and green finance, mostly in African countries. She's worked for a multilateral development bank, an international think tank, a national forest entity, and various UN agencies. She holds a Master's of Science in Energy, Environmental Technology, and Economics from City University of London. Monique, thanks for joining us today. Now, you are calling us from somewhere pretty cold, right? And what brings you there? Thanks for having me. I am. I am calling in from sunny and cold Cambridge, Massachusetts in the U.S. And I'm here as I'm completing my master's program in public administration. And with that, I also like to shout out all my my fellow um, colleagues, my classmates, actually, that, that are with me um, here today. So not to bury the lead about what we're going to talk about or anything, but what is one big takeaway you want listeners to know about the economic impact of accelerating the energy transition? I think one thing that's important to remember is that the energy transition and the sustainability of that transition is possible around the world, but it must encounter certain requirements, including technical, financial, and political. And that will vary from region to region. But it's absolutely possible for us to go to a sustainable tomorrow if we really want to. So it's going to be complicated. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited to really delve into those details over the course of this conversation. Also joining us today, we have Peter Martin, Director of Macroeconomics here at Wood Mackenzie. Now, Peter has been working at Wood Mackenzie since September 2010, where his work initially covered European energy markets before he moved to the macroeconomics research team in 2011. He is responsible for producing Woodmac's macroeconomic outlook to 2050. Peter is experienced in forecasting key macroeconomic metrics such as GDP, industrial production, FX, and inflation. Peter has a master's with honors in economics from the University of Glasgow, as well as an MSc in economic management and policy at Strathclyde Business School. 
Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Liz. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. And are you also equally somewhere cold and sunny? Well, usually cold, yes. Yeah. So I'm in rural Stirlingshire in Scotland. Today is actually Burns Night. So this is a big day of celebration of the Scottish bard, national poet. So I don't have any Burns to share with you right now, but uh, maybe another time. <laughs> so same question for you. What is one big takeaway that you want listeners to know here about the economic impact of accelerating the energy transition? Okay, I think it's really around the fact that if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, it's imperative that we accelerate that energy transition. We're not currently on course to do that. Obviously, if we achieve that, that'll be a really big boost for our environment, for the planet, for our future. But what are the economic impacts of that? I think that's what we want to understand as well. We, you know, we think that while there is a short, short-term cost to achieving an accelerated transition, which keeps us on that one and a half degree path, that over the longer term that that will pay off. So pain in the short term, but long-term gain. All right. So I have some questions and I'm looking forward to a very lively conversation around this today. First up, governments committed to meeting net zero carbon targets generally promote the positive impacts of the economy on the investments and job creations that the energy transition is going to bring. Now, would McKenzie research estimates that required investment in power supply and infrastructure alone estimate it's going to be at least 50 trillion US dollars. Peter, starting with you, where do you think this investment is needed most? Is it across the board from grids to storage, everything in between, or are there certain areas where that investment is really, really needed? Yeah, the 50 trillion US dollars estimate of investment into the transition that comes from our Wood McKenzie's Energy Transition Service. So they forecast what our base case is um, and what's required to get to our, our base case, which is a, a two and a half degree warming world. So they estimate that to get to 1.5 degrees, we would require this 50 trillion US dollar investment globally. That's both on public investment and private investment. And it's roughly split 50-50 between investments into new power capacity, so solar PV, wind, hydrogen, so new sources of low carbon, clean energy. And then the other half of that uh, roughly into infrastructure networks and other things associated in order to support new energy systems. Okay, well, I definitely agree with what Peter um, just mentioned. I, I have to say that in, in developing countries, one of the the major issues is access to energy, let alone transition to cleaner energy. And that access still requires a lot of financing and infrastructure. And so uh, in order to be able to obtain these very ambitious goals, there will need to be um, serious investment in infrastructure and also knowing what technology works best in what areas um, around the world and to be strategic about the type of investments that we make in, in certain developing countries will definitely help in achieving that that very ambitious goal. That's a really good point. Some economies are more exposed to climate risk than others. You know, rising sea levels, for instance, can endanger low-lying islands. And many parts of the world are going to experience things like enforced migration and really extreme dry or wet climates and small islands in particular can be at risk. Now, Monique, starting with you, I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, what areas of the world do you think are most at risk? And then how can we mitigate those dangers as a global economy? That's a great question. And I, I have to honestly say that 
every part of the world is at risk. It will be felt differently depending on how the country is preparing to adapt to, to these changes. And so I can say, and from my side of the world, especially in Africa, the biggest issue is to adapt to what is currently happening. And so everywhere where there is low infrastructure around the coast, the coastal areas, that is a serious issue that has to be addressed today and cannot wait for an energy transition or new infrastructure to be built because the sea level rise, it rises every year as of now. Uh, same thing with the island states who are really um, threatened for their own existence um, in this world because of the lack of adaptation means that they have right now. So I would say that the countries or the regions that are the most affected are those that have to deal a lot with water accessibility because that also affects their agriculture. It also affects the drought within the country and the sea level rise affects their existing infrastructure as it is right now. So you mentioned adaptions. What kind of adaptions have you seen or are some of these countries putting in place? So one of the adaptive measures, of course, is uh, regarding, for example, um, regulations when there are uh, new roads that are being built, the levels, the height will be changed. There are also some, some regulations in terms of tree planting, for example, enforcing that, making it mandatory to do so because we, we, we know the effect of that type of uh, natural block, if you'd like to, to these natural disasters. These are small policy and regulatory measures that can be taken by municipal, local, uh, regional governments, but they do have a really important impact uh, on the ground. So those are the small things that can be done without major financing. But of course, that, that won't be sustainable because of just the level and the intensity of the, the change in climate. And that's why the level of investment in infrastructure is very important to be able to make these, um, these changes uh, sustainable. Yeah. I'm curious, Peter, on your thoughts. How can we mitigate some of these dangers as a global economy coming together? Yeah, I think the point Monique made was pretty on point is that you know this climate warming effect is happening right now. And already countries across the world are spending tens of billions every year trying to adapt to that, to those adaptation costs. And if we don't do anything about that, that's going to escalate to hundreds of billions relatively soon. And in order to, to obviously mitigate some of those costs, I think it sort of stands to reason, it's quite obvious, right? We need to limit the global warming as much as we can to try and offset some of the costs of, of mitigating it. So when we were looking at our analysis about the economic impacts of accelerating the transition, obviously we're going from a base case of around two and a half degree warming down to 1.5 degree warming. So all those countries that are highly vulnerable to climate change um, and the various risks that, that we can mention, they are obviously going to see um, a benefit from from lowering that. So on one side, you get this benefit, but they actually the cost of making that happen, the mitigation measures that are put in place in order to keep global temperatures to 1.5 degrees have an offsetting cost to that. So uh, whenever we went through, uh, when we're looking at that, what that benefit actually is to those economies, we, we score all the economies across the world based on their vulnerability to climate change. And what came out from that is that we have mostly countries in Southeast Asia or small island states, um, India, Bangladesh, parts of Africa, all extremely vulnerable to climate change. So 
if we manage to limit that, they will be some of the economies that see the biggest boom or the, the biggest benefit. But of course, when we think about things like small um, island states, their ability to actually contribute to mitigating climate change is extremely small, right? They, in the grand scheme of things, don't emit a lot of carbon. Therefore, their actual contribution to the overall global problem is very minimal, but they are very exposed to the effects. So they really rely on a collective action by governments, institutions, bodies across the world to get behind trying to accelerate the transition. Absolutely. So I want to dive a little bit more into those numbers and then come back to some of these countries. What I was reading is that we assume by avoiding climate change damage, we could boost global GDP on average by 1.6% in 2050. At the same time, however, the actions required to successfully mitigate global warming to 1.5 degrees C could knock 3.6% off GDP in 2050. So what are the actions that would result in that net decrease of GDP? What's actually driving that? Okay, so those are all the, the actions that are taken in order to accelerate the transition. So those can be direct actions like taxation on high carbon activities or subsidizing low carbon or transition um, consumption, or they could be public investment, green stimulus, um, all those kind of direct things. Given that to successfully transition, accelerate transition and keep global warming to 1.5 degrees, it requires a huge amount of front-loaded action. The action really needs to take place between now, 2030, maybe 2035 at the latest. And what that means is that the, the global economy will be responding in a way by diverting investment from where we're kind of at at the minute business as usual investment into lower carbon um, investments, green investments. And in the initial period of that, that's going to be quite disruptive. We think it's going to have an economic impact in terms of capital being allocated to activities and projects which don't perhaps provide as high a return, haven't got as high a value add, aren't as productive in that early phase. We know this because we have to front load investment into areas where the costs and the development aren't at a mature and a commercial level yet. So we're going to be putting more investment into higher cost areas in order to eventually see costs begin to fall and become more competitive against traditional fuels or traditional investments into fossil fuels. We are also then going to have an effect on having higher inflation in economies, which might be met by higher interest rates as well, which can tighten the capital constraints as well around that. So it's really in the short term, therefore, we, we have this, this, this is what leads to some of that economic loss. But when we reach a point where in our study, we think around about 2030, 2035, we get this equalization of return on investment between the new investments and green technologies versus some of the more traditional. Then we're kind of emerging with an economy, which is greener, lower carbon, better connected, better infrastructure. And there's a potential for significant productivity gains over the longer term, which means that GDP growth could outpace our, our base case at the minute, and that we can start to recoup some of that economic loss. So beyond 2050, between 2050 and the end of the century, we can hopefully recoup the cost that it, it's going to take to accelerate the transition in the first place. So really, it's just looking at tightening the belt for the next 10, 15 years to really potentially have much more upside through the end of 2050. Yeah, the pain is in the short term in order to make sure that we achieve the best environmental outcome. Um, and eventually in the longer term, that should have an economic benefit too. 
No pain, no gain, right? Exactly. <laughs> Monique, do you have any thoughts or any comments from any of this? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree that there needs to be some changes made to the way that we are evolving. So the the, the business as usual model is, is no longer going to be efficient uh, going into this energy transition. But I do want to uh, remind that the tightening the belt is for those that have enough holes in their belt to tighten it up. And there are some countries that don't have that they are ready at the last, the last hole where you can tighten the belt. And so it's important to keep that in mind that the sense of urgency is really being felt by some populations. And we see it every day in, in, our, in our daily news, whether it is you know, a typhoon in, in Asia or whether it is a hurricane in, in Latin America or in the Caribbean, or whether it is a, a drought period in Africa. This is, this is happening already on, on a daily basis. And we can't afford to wait until 2050. So this really is an important period in our time that we've already recognized what the issue is. We know how to fix it. And it is up to, to, to us to really push our government to implement these changes, because this is really the last piece of the missing puzzle. I mean, and I understand that the theme of this podcast is all about the economic impact of the energy transition, but we're also assuming that GDP is the primary metric here that, or at least one of the big metrics we want to, we want to chase. And I think it's important too, from the points that, that you were just pointing out that GDP is potentially not the be all end all. It's one thing to keep track of, but there are a lot of individuals whose lives and whose livelihoods and whose homes are being affected on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's fair to say that the cost of inaction far, far outweighs the cost of action. But again, there's still economic impacts of transitioning and completely overhauling to a renewable energy landscape. So we talked a little bit about what aspects of the energy transition could result in a decrease of GDP, but I'm curious what each of you think are the one or two things that could have the most positive impact of the GDP. What are those one or two levers that might result in the most positive impact? Peter, let's start with you. So in in terms of the the positive aspects, well, we've already mentioned some of it is the mitigating some of that climate damage that occurs if we can actually lower some of the warming trajectories. But I think in the transition, there are also a huge amount of opportunities. So that kind of centers around the new technology opportunities. And that makes China quite an interesting country in this, because when we look at the study, China is obviously the largest emitter of carbon in the world. It has, when, when we look at the, the negative impacts, one of the key drivers in our study is how far you are from net zero, essentially. So the further you are, your economy is from net zero, the more work you've got to do to decarbonize your economy. That's obviously puts quite an economic stress on when we talk about those drivers earlier. But in China's case, they're also the center for the manufacture of a lot of these key transition technologies. So solar PV, wind turbines, electric vehicles, lithium batteries. In most of those, well over 50% of global output coming from China. So there are areas which um, could really thrive in the transition. And we also look at other countries. So one of the general themes that come out across all countries, the countries that we think will fare better in transition to 2050, are those that generally are closer to their net zero goals, those that have kind of a low reliance on um, hydrocarbon income, so they're not heavily reliant on hydrocarbon income, 
and those that are well positioned to transition. So do they have a presence in those transition technologies? Do they have a foothold in those markets? Or do they have high levels of R&D in new areas, new technologies, so they're more likely to spend on investment and therefore give themselves a good chance of getting into those markets? And are the economies wealthy as well? So a big theme is that the wealthier economies will tend to do better out of this. So while we talked a little bit earlier on about the high-level global impacts and GDP loss to 2050, one of the big takeaways is that at a country level, there's a huge inequality across the world and tends to be low-income economies and those that are highly reliant on hydrocarbon revenue streams that will fare worst. Yeah. Monique, what are your thoughts here? I think the plus side of renewable energy, the advantage is that it's viable almost everywhere in the world. So obviously not everybody has the same amount of sunshine and wind speed that varies per region, but it is much less geographically concentrated than fossil fuels right now. So that provides an opportunity that profits are no longer going to be generated primarily from you know energy sources themselves, but rather from the conversion stage and deployment of technologies. And that creates job opportunities, manufacturing um, opportunities in various regions. So really, um, I think there's, there, there are quite a bit of, of opportunities from, from the renewable energy uh, transition because of that, because it's not focused just on, on certain areas or just on one type of technology, or which is the one that we're, is most used right now, which is fossil fuel. Um, and so I, I definitely am, am optimistic of the, the type of economic benefit that it will provide in addition to the energy access that it will provide to the, the various um, populations. I think that's a really great point. And speaking of countries, I know we've we've mentioned China, we've mentioned a few specific countries. I want to circle back to that a little bit and kind of hand in hand with these technologies. On the other hand, there are economies who are resilient to climate change. Nordic countries such as Finland and Sweden could actually benefit from some warming that could result in actually higher productivity. And so we really need to look at definitely tackling climate change as a whole with more resilient countries picking up the slack in order to protect those economies that we talked about earlier that are more at risk with so, so many trade-offs that we've started to get into. One thing I want, I want to start with you here, Monique, is how can we work towards a unified energy transition across the globe so it doesn't get split into countries that have room in their belt to tighten and others that don't? How can we really start to see each other as as partners of planet Earth to tackle this? I think the one thing that's important is to honor some of the, the big goals that we collectively have agreed needs to, to happen to have a more sustainable world. That includes honoring our promises towards the sustainable development goals, which tackles various aspects of uh, climate change and also um, towards respecting the Paris Agreement, which was signed collectively by um, developing countries and, and everybody that is part of that convention. So I think that one way to, to be unified is by respecting these, these conventions and these policies that we already all agreed are important. That will help unified action in uh, a fair technology transfer as well as financial transfer because that's really the the core of the issue is who's willing to pay for this this transition and not everybody feels that there there is equity in the way that these uh, this finance is being distributed and I really do think that um, once we have established some form 
of uh, financial means, whether it is through carbon markets, whether it is through uh, tax or subsidies in our international trade policies, whether it is through um, the private or public investments that we do through bilateral exchanges with development uh, agencies or even uh, national development institutions, that will create the unified action for us to, to really go towards uh, policies. But we need to start by respecting what we already agreed on and, and not really reinvent the wheel here. That's such a great point. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, certainly out of our analysis in, in our Horizons paper, inequality in the economic impact, you know, we talk about GDP as that metric, should really be ringing in policymakers' ears to understand how they can level this out across the world. And it takes global collective action to do that. I have to say the developments recently have been positive. They're not perhaps going to get us there at the minute. We're maybe not going to get to one and a half degrees. But certainly after COP26 in Glasgow, we had real positive movement on the agreement on the Paris rulebook, uh, commitment to that. We had the rules around global carbon tax, which you know, for the first time will bring a lot of emissions under a carbon market around the world. Um, we also had that reaffirmment to climate finance transfers, 100 billion a year. US dollars from the developed to the developing. But I think the questions are, is that enough? And at the minute, I don't think that's enough and we need to do more. I think that's difficult because it does rely on that, that global cooperation. And we have, while we've made some progress, certainly after Glasgow, we also have reminders all the time about how global cooperation can break down pretty quickly. And if we draw an experience of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the vaccine inequality rollout around the world, we can see that you know when we're faced with an immediate threat, mostly governments and policymakers retrench into nationalistic interests. So we need to have more emphasis behind global cooperation, making it stick, making it happen, and committing to more transfers and really make a tangible impact on leveling up the economic impact. Absolutely. I feel like I just want to clap loudly, but for all the listeners out there, I don't want to hurt your ears. I think those are both very, very good points. I have one last question and then we'll wrap it up. So in the energy transition from an economic outlook, there will be winners and losers. You guys can interpret this however you would like. Who do you think the winners are going to be and who do you think the losers are going to be? Peter, we are going to start with you. Okay, I think I think the winners are you know, those that fit our criteria of they're set to do better out of transition. Those are the countries that are closer to their net zero targets. So in a way, they've already paid for some of their decarbonization and transition. So from now to 2050, they're in a better position. Also wealthier economies because they can afford to make the investments, probably better access to capital at lower cost. They're more likely to be involved in some of the key sectors which are going to you know fuel the transition to manufacturing of transition related technologies and those sort of things so in our study we come out with france and switzerland actually seeing a net positive in gdp by 2050 on the other side who's going to lose out well it's those economies that are highly reliant on hydrocarbon income the middle east going to be a big cost for them because in the transition, we're going to see precipitous fall in oil prices. And while 
in the Middle East, they have some of the most advantaged oil assets in the world, and they will probably actually hold on or gain market share in the remaining oil demand that's that's required, even under the accelerated transition. Their economies are going to struggle under that collapse in, in government revenue or that, that hit to government revenue. So Iraq comes out as taking the biggest hit because 95% of its government revenue comes from hydrocarbon income. It doesn't have enough time to transition and diversify its economy, given that the transition is going to be really intensely focused if we get to one and a half degrees in that first 10, 15 years. It won't have enough um, time to make a transition or doesn't have a lot of assets to call on in terms of financial assets that it can help drive a transition. So looking at the Middle East as a whole, if we dive into it a bit more, you know, there are economies in more position, better positions like Saudi Arabia where they have a lot of wealth to call on. They also have potential in areas like hydrogen that you know could work well in an accelerated transition. I definitely have to agree with Peter that the, the, the biggest losers are going to be the major um, exporters of oil, gas, and, and coal, because the competitive price of renewable energy is, is going to catch up. And so there'll be definitely more... Um, critique or as the population is just more and more sensitive to sustainability, we'll have more options at uh, similar prices, really. And those countries are, are, are really going to, to be affected. Um, in the long run, I also think that the losers are going to be those that do not have the resources currently to start that transition. And unfortunately, that still remains the the countries that are uh, the most vulnerable to climate change and that have contributed the least to the actual uh, paradigm in which we're we're going through. And that's the most unfortunate, is that there is an opportunity here for um, all economies to really help these developing countries leapfrog from, you know, a very basic um, energy uh, access infrastructure to a more sustainable means, but that really requires financial mechanisms and access to these resources, whether it's private investments or, or otherwise or, or international mechanisms for, for them to be able to, to leapfrog. And as Peter mentioned, um, in times of crisis, and we've seen it very predominantly during COVID, um, everybody retreats back to what's, what's best for them, leaving these very vulnerable nations left without having access nor to the finance, nor to the technology, nor to the capacity, the, the human capacity, uh, the, the labor force or capacity um, building um, opportunities to, to be able to leapfrog. So I do think that unless there is serious investment being made in these countries right now, they will end up still being on the losing end. And that's that's really unfortunate because they, they didn't create the, or they, they, they contributed the least to uh, the, the current um, climate change, uh, global warming problem that we have right now. Thank you both for a very, very insightful conversation. Monique, thanks for joining us today and special shout out to your cohort at Harvard. Is there anywhere that listeners can learn more about the work you're doing to enable the clean energy transition? Definitely. So I do a lot of, um, I write a lot on, on various blogs. So I have blogs on the policy or journals at uh, Harvard University. And I also do some personal blogs so they can find it on my uh, personal website, moniquemadi.com. They can contact me there as, as well. And I have quite a bit of analysis being done 
on various climate investment, private investment opportunities, and uh, climate technologies that could be interesting to to implement um, at a small scale. I look forward to checking it out. Peter, thank you also for joining us today. Where can listeners learn about Woodmac's macroeconomic outlook? Yeah, well, you can go on to woodmac.com to read the latest Horizons report, which is the no pain, no gain, the economic consequences of accelerating the energy transition. So I would check out that first. Thank you both so much. This was a great conversation and I look forward to following up. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and thank you for joining us on the Horizons podcast. Governments, when committing to net zero carbon targets, talk about the positive impact on the economy that the energy transition will bring through things like investment and job creation. But but the overall economic impacts are not going to be evenly distributed. There will be winners and there will be losers. The losers will be hydrocarbon exporting and carbon intensive economies. Less developed and low income economies will bear a disproportionately high burden. The winners? Economies that are already close to net zero targets. Wealthier economies who can invest in new technologies. These, in fact, may even benefit economically by 2050. Some countries facing the greatest burden from the environmental costs of a 1.5 degree C pathway are also among those expected to see the fastest growth in population over the next 30 years. Now, in per capita terms, the cost of decarbonization for these countries is even greater. An accelerated transition will pay off, however, in economic terms. Some economies will see stronger growth rates beyond 2030, enabling losses to be recouped before the end of the century. The essence of transition economics, short-term pain for very long-term gain. Thanks, Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, Chief Analyst at Wood McKenzie. Let me share my thoughts about no pain, no gain. First, We're at the very beginning of a transformation of the world's energy system. It's change that we have to make. Second, the investment in low carbon technologies, the green investment boom, will bring jobs. Thirdly, there's an economic cost to mitigating the effect of global warming. Fourth, that cost won't be equally shared. The developed world benefited from fossil fuels over the last two centuries. These developed countries have to take responsibility and support developing countries in their transition to make sure it's a just transition. Fifth, there will be a payback. The cost will be worth it. We expect the world starts to see the investment deliver improved returns from around 2035. It's going to make the world more sustainable in the decades to come for our children and our grandchildren. Thanks for listening to our January Horizons. I just want to flag briefly our February one, how China's boom year changes the path of the energy transition. We'll be looking at the exponential growth in renewables as the world electrifies. Our Horizons examines how the rest of the world deals with China's dominance of solar and wind manufacturing. Thanks for listening and bye for now.